How we doing? This is Rob Bolster with RBF Fitness and Nutrition. People upgrade their iPhones, they upgrade their Androids, they upgrade their laptops, but yeah. they're operating with the same brain that they operated with for the last decade. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. You know why you do what you do. So racism, it's out there, but it doesn't have to stop you. Just because somebody might look at you a certain way, that doesn't have to stop your forward progress. Where you have to eliminate the excuses. You gotta make that game plan say, for me to get to that point. Right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a double podcast Tuesday. So I got one right now, 11 o'clock to 12, and then I'm back again at 1 o'clock because tomorrow's guest had to reschedule. So we're going to do two of them today. That way, you guys don't miss out on hearing her journey as well. So this is episode 77. I don't know if I said that yet. So we're creeping up on the next milestone of 80 as we roar to get into the triple digits. So today, we're going to talk about serving underserved communities and a, a unique approach that this gentleman is taking to put his, I don't want to say his stamp on it, but to put some effort behind the words because everybody talks about wanting to help people in need, but then when it comes time to actually help, that's where people drop off. So what this man is doing is incredible. He was here uh, several episodes ago. He's my first two-time guest, so I'm not going to go through the long-winded intro like I usually do. So let's just bring him on, Adam Chaka. Come on down. Welcome to the show, sir. Excellent. Oh, I appreciate the warm welcome. Awesome. My, my pleasure. You know, you know how I do by now. <laughs> All right. So when you were on last, you know, I felt felt like we didn't cover everything that we needed to cover because you know, it sounds like an hour is a long time for these things, but it's really not. I mean, God, Avengers Endgame was three hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> you know? and that was a movie. Like we're talking about real life stuff here. So um, just give everyone an overview again of the question I always ask. Who is Adam? So give the give the crew a refresher. Excellent. Thank you, uh, Adam Chaka, uh, founder of the Chaka Network. And uh, yeah, my second book is all about my vision, um, building uh, 14 dance studios, 14 major American cities. Uh, it's a grand vision. I'm, I'm coming through. I'm an instrument of God. It's, it's, uh, I'm just so grateful every day and, and humbled to, to, to have this uh, mission. And uh, yeah, but uh, my day job is I'm a high school teacher. So high school teacher, 15 years. Married, two kids outside of Boston, and uh, I think that's where the first dance studio is going to be. Uh, thank you for having me on, Robert. My pleasure, my pleasure. So as we get into the story, I am going to ask you a couple questions, and I don't want to catch you off guard with them, but I might catch you off guard with them. <laughs> but but we're going to build the show up. I mean, we're, we're going to re rebuild the story again, then, then I'll ask you. Like, one has to do with your, you know, being a, a high school teacher and with schools across the country introducing cr critical race theory. But we'll get there in a moment. And then, you know, just the other one is about the dance studios and who, who they're serving and what could possibly be portrayed by that. 
But like I said, we'll get there. But you know, I don't want want to catch you off guard because those, those are two pretty loaded loaded questions. <laughs> so I'll give you some some time to, to prepare your answer. So so let's go let's go back to how how did you get started? So before you wrote your first book, what led you to write that book? Ah, well, sure. Uh, that is uh, my first book was on my road to sobriety, how I was able to overcome alcoholism and anxiety and depression. Um. And uh, that, that's the short answer. I don't know uh, uh, if you, um, you know, how much you want me to go into the, the first book, uh, but it was pretty powerful. I can mention a little bit about the, um, you know, I was a drunk, an alcoholic. This is five years ago, and I needed to get sober. And um, it is, uh, you know, being a drunk is not like a pretty story. It's not uh, a beautiful story. There's there's shame, there's guilt, uh, you know, and some people hit rock bottom where they lose everything and they lose their family or their job or their house. Or, and um, so by the grace of God, I discovered Wayne Dyer. Uh, I know you know that name, Dr. Wayne Dyer. And uh, I credit him with saving my life. It was it was awesome. I, I was in a self-help section of the library because I liked books on tape as I would drive to work. And I didn't even think I was, you know, looking for self-help or I didn't go there looking for books on how to get sober. But um, I happened to find one of his books and, and uh, audio books and lectures. And man, when I heard him speak, it was like the truth. I'm like, wow, no one ever told me this stuff. Like just, it blew <laughs> my world. It blew my mind. So yeah. So I, I, then I was on a journey of intellectual lessons, like first learning lessons about your own psychology and your own thinking. And uh, I read all of his books and, um, uh, and then, uh, Later on, he wrote about spirituality, so I had a spiritual revelation also, in which I discovered my soul, and uh, yeah, so thank God. I, I mean, I, you know, and how do they do it? I, I share it in the book, the first book. Um, uh, I, I do daily meditation still. That helped. Uh, I did hot yoga three days a week for a year. Um, so um, yeah, so I my personal transformation from like sobriety and alcoholism, uh, anxiety and depression to getting sober it was so wonderful. I, I went through so many big changes that I became a new person and I realized I could help others and write a book. So yeah. So that was the first book. Thank you. Love it. Love it. See, and that's, see, I wanted you to go over that, that again, cause you know, that's the power of what we do is like, sometimes our journeys, people use, they, they think their journey is shameful, but it's actually not like that journey is powerful. So like in you sharing that, there's probably someone that's going to hear this that's in that same boat. Like they know that they're drinking too much or they're abusing too much or they, they want to quit smoking and they don't know how, how to do it. And then hearing stories like that empowers them to go and get help. Or just like you, you said you weren't even going to look for help, but subconsciously you knew you needed it. And then the universe puts you right in front of the book that you needed. <laughs> you know, so sometimes just recognizing what you need you're able to see the opportunities in front of you. So that's perfect. Yes. Love it. I agree. Totally. And, yes. uh, and you know, it's, you know, I wish I could just, you know, share in one sentence, like how to get sober. Like if for someone who's hearing this and is thinking they're drinking too much, I, but you know, I, there were so many lessons I learned. And so those are my first book, 50 days to a better life. It's 50 lessons over 50 days. So, yeah, I mean, that's just, just to show I, you know, I learned 30, 40 
it kept growing. It wasn't going to be 50. It was like 37, then it was 42, then it was, I'm like, oh my God, 48, 49, 50. Perfect. 50 lessons I've learned. Yes. Yes. See, and, and again, for people listening, like it doesn't have to be something major like battling alcoholism or battling drugs. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. It could be grieving, grieving, you know, losing someone. It could be you wronging someone and living with that guilt. You know, there's, there's so many different feelings and emotions and actions that we deal with throughout our lives. But you have the power to take those experiences and then in turn help other people. And you can earn earn a living doing that. You know, it's like some people say that they feel guilty. I'm like, there's therapists and psychologists and social workers. Like, it, it's a thing. It's a real thing. And your own experiences are just as powerful if not even more so than things that are taught out of a textbook, you know, cause like you lived it, like, like you're talking about your lived experience. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it's so powerful. And I'm so grateful to, you know, have discovered Wayne Dyer and learn those lessons. And then, you know, cause my life sober now is so much better. I, uh, I, you know, I, I mentioned stress and anxiety and depression, but, I mean, it was powerful. I was, I'm a high school teacher. And so after school, I'd be in tears three days a week, driving home in tears three days a week. Um, I was suicidal at one point. It's, uh, it was rough. It's, there's a lot of suffering and pain. And uh, yeah, I mean, now it's like, you know, almost no stress, no anxiety. It's like, I just, I'm on purpose. I've discovered a life purpose, which I know we're going to talk about. And yeah, yeah, it's great. Thank you. Yes. See, and the true, the true power in that is because you came, you came to grips with what it was you were going through. And I think a lot of people, they get stuck in that anxiety and that depression and everything else is, and it's because they stay in there. Like, instead of just addressing the hurt, like you came right out and said, I was a drunk, you know, like you didn't even say I was an alcoholic, You're like I was a drunk, you know, you just own it. You put it out there and then that releases the weight from you. And then now you'll have that mental clarity, you know, like you can be able to get the vision and then zero in on your life's purpose. So, so take, so take me between, between writing the first book to just before you wrote the second book. So what was that journey like? Ah, that's a good question. That's why I asked them. (laughs) I don't think I've got that question yet from any podcaster. Good job. Thank you. I'm going to make sure I put that in my marketing spiel. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that at least one, once or twice, twice a show. Because as you know, I don't like the typical boring talking points. Like I want to hear, I want to hear the, the real stuff. You know, it's like, that's why I don't pre-screen, pre-screen anyone beforehand. Because I want your actual raw journey. And that's what the listeners are attracted to. Man, that's awesome. And so, uh, 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 and I'm, you know, because I haven't answered that question before, I guess I haven't really thought much about that. But all right, all right. So let's break it down then. All right. So you finished the first book. So you, you get it out on the shelves. What were your next steps? Yeah. So, well, okay. What's really cool. I feel like, you know, uh, uh, God was sort of working through me and, and allowing the ideas to come at the right time. Nice. So because I, uh, even before I wrote the first book, I had the dance studio vision. Okay, now the second book is all about the dance studios uh, for underprivileged kids, young people of color in America's big cities, low-cost, affordable dance class experiences. 
uh, and teams. But uh, yeah, so I had that idea before I wrote the first book. And I started writing all of these ideas back in 2015 for the dance studios. So I had this vision about uh, wanting to build something that was like enrichment, after school, supportive to moms and dads, uh, supportive to young people of color after school so that they're getting, you know, enrichment, kind of like a Boys and Girls Club or a YMCA. And, um, and, and, then, and then how did that vision come to be? Yeah. So, man, that's a really cool question, Robert, because I was, uh, uh, for my first book, I was trying to like, you know, I'm not a famous author. How do I like manifest this? How do I manufacture a book tour? Uh, so I, I devised a plan to do a nationwide book tour. I bought a van. I drove across America, a three month journey from Boston to Los Angeles um, so I appeared on TV morning talk shows. Um, you know, it's hard to get on Good Morning America. So smaller markets like Good Morning Memphis and Good Morning Baton Rouge. And, um, and so as I was driving across America for my nationwide book tour for the first book, I was still thinking every day about the dance studio vision. How do I build these dance studios um, and, and working on it sort of every day and reaching up to God in my meditations and prayers and um, trying to remain open. So for a lot of the ideas, I'll say that I don't really take credit. I kind of feel like it's just God coming through me. Um, I just feel like the vessel. So, um, yeah, that's a, a bit of the story is that this is kind of been a, a long, slow dream. I had been writing the dance studio ideas, the vision, the business plan since 2015, a couple months after Mike Brown fatally shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, I was upset about racism, wanting to do something to support the black community. Uh, moms and dads. Um, I mean, I, I've been upset about racism for a long time, but it's, it's having started to study it in college. It was my minor, African-American studies. But uh, yeah, so <clears throat> um, it was really cool how the, the ideas came slowly, like little by little over a five-year period. It was it was never like a total epiphany on one day of everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I was just, just curious. So now, so in your... And you're wanting to battle racism. Have you encountered racism being a Caucasian person looking to help the black community? Well, I've, I mean, I've seen it, but it's only sort of like towards my wife who's from West Africa or, okay. and um, so our, we have two teenage boys and so they are biracial and, and I coached them in sports for like eight years. Uh, we're outside of Boston. Massachusetts. And, um, so no, like I, you know, I can't say that I have experienced racism towards me. It's, uh, but, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, but you know, my wife has told me stories of, oh yeah, throughout the day when, I mean, when she'd come home and then we talk or sometimes when, when I'm with her, um, and, uh, yeah, you know, most, if she has experienced racism, I'll say in this day and age, it's mostly from people who are ignorant or they have fear. And so they, you know, or they have like negative feelings towards others, like almost like hate towards others yeah. and they, they lash out. Yes. Um, but I think racism in, I mean, this year you and I are speaking in 2021. So if anyone sees this podcast in the future, you know, I'll say that nowadays I feel like racism is subtle, subtle. You know, we don't, uh, people might have closed minded thinking or thoughts of ju judgment, bias, prejudice, but not everyone says it, you know, it's not like 1955. Yeah. Uh, you know, back in the fifties, I think, you know, people were, uh, 
felt you know more free to express themselves and you know didn't well race racism was legal then <laughs> there was still there was still segregation and you know the the uh, jim crow laws and stuff so it was legal then but like one thing one thing i'll say is that i wonder how much of it i don't want to say is i don't want to use the word manufactured but for for example i, w- I was up in vermont and I was in a, li- a little market and I usually don't get baskets or cards. Like I, whatever I can carry, that's all I need. So I just get what I can carry. And this younger, younger white kid kept staring down at me, you know? And then at first, at just at first, I'm like, why is this kid staring at me? You know, like, and, and I don't go straight to the whole skin color thing, but I was just curious as to why he kept staring at me. And, but then he starts walking towards me and he's like, sir, would you like a basket? No, know what I mean? So he was recognizing that I was overloaded and that's why he was looking down at me. But I went on like, how many times are we in a store or a person is a person of color in the store and a Caucasian person might glance over and we just instantly think they think I'm trying to steal something. <laughs> you know, it's like, do you think that happens a lot in your, your experience, in your opinion? I mean, I know we're talking a hypothetical here, but still. Oh, you're saying in which a person of color assumes racism is happening, but you're saying it, it's not actually happening? Well, well, I'm saying it's not It's not known. Like if someone glances at you and they glance away, you're interpreting what that glance meant. Right. But, but in their mind, you don't really know what yeah. they were thinking. Like another example is that I saw two girls walking. They were holding hands. They were kind of color coordinated. And stuff, and I glanced over, and I looked at. I was in my mind. I was like, they look really cute together, but I didn't say anything. And so one of the other girls looked at me, kind of flashed me a look, like a, a not positive look, thinking, you know. So she was. She must have been interpreting why I was looking at them. When in reality, they looked adorable. <laughs> you know, they looked absolutely adorable. So that that just the, just those two instances just got me thinking. Like, I wonder how how many times that happens. Because one thing when discussing racism is people will say like, I go somewhere and and people are staring at me, and it's like, yeah, but you that doesn't mean it's necessarily racism. Wow. <laughs> you know. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Sure. I'm. I mean, I what. Your little stories there help me think about instances in which this probably happens on a daily basis. I mean, think about any big city like New York City subway system. And I lived in New York City for five years after college. And so those, I know the subways really well. And, you know, at at certain times of the day, those subways can be very busy. And yeah, so there must be, you know, we, we're humans and we look at each other and we make observations and then we have thoughts or feelings. And so people are thinking things and um, yeah, all the time we're always thinking, and and but of course they don't always say what they're thinking. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's left to to interpretation, you know. But but like that interpretation, it's just that it's an interpretation, you know. Like mm-hmm. that's not a fact. So I just wanted to point point that part out. All right, so you're on this mission now to build these dance studios. So why did you pick dance studio? Oh, excellent! Again, thank you. I haven't, somebody hasn't asked this question, and uh, you know, or maybe ever. Oh, <laughs> Robert, so awesome to be with you today. You really, <laughs> brilliant questions. This is what I do. <laughs> well, and I love sharing this part of the story. I, and uh, so I was coaching my two boys in sports for about eight years: youth soccer, youth basketball, 
uh, we're outside of Boston, Mass. And so we're in the suburbs. And so when the kids would play in soccer games against, you know, travel soccer, you play against the towns right around you. Mm. Uh, travel basketball, you play against the towns or cities right near your town, your city, right? So, uh, so we're in the suburbs and we'd play the towns around here. And so it's like a lot of little white boys. Okay, fine. No big deal. You know, with my wife being from West Africa, our two boys are biracial. And so I sometimes had that perspective where like my kid was the only black kid on the team and, but no big deal. Like everyone was nice. You know, I I can't say that we experienced racism. Um, I just had that different perspective. And anyways, uh, when my older one was age 10, we started doing AAU basketball. I I believe you're familiar with AAU basketball tournaments. And um, so that, um, it was this 2015, 16, first time in my life as a white man that I got to see a youth basketball team with 13 black and brown boys. And I thought it was fantastic. It was wonderful. They were well coached. They had, you know, three or four coaches. The uniforms looked amazing. Uh, uh, they played so well. And But I was curious. I'm like, oh, this is so great. And these tournaments, by the way, AAU basketball tournaments, for people that don't know, it's a huge, like, in a stadium, and they break it into, like, 14 different courts. So you could have, like, 20 or 30 different youth basketball teams, all of the same age group, playing against each other in a big tournament, and it lasts for, like, three days. So my point of sharing this is that hundreds of boys are getting to this opportunity. And uh, so I, was, I thought it was awesome, but I was curious, what do we have for black and brown girls, young women of color? And uh, I saw the same thing in Pop Warner football. Uh, again, we're in the suburbs, so we would only play teams with a lot of little white boys. But around that time, we started to play uh, Brockton, Randolph. These are two diverse communities right near Boston. And it was the first time in my life, as a white man, I got to see a youth football team with like 47 black and brown boys. And again, fantastic. They were well-organized, 10 coaches. I knew one of the coaches from, uh, it was an old high school friend. And, uh, but again, curious, okay, this is great. What do we have for black and brown girls, young women of color here in Boston? And uh, so at that time, I discovered the popularity of hip hop dance through reality TV. Maybe, you know, Miss Diana Williams. Oh, in fact, you do. Uh, she has the um, Dancing Dolls brand, multi-million dollar brand now in the South with multiple locations. And um, and then, of course, there are Netflix documentaries. Uh, we see it's popular at many colleges and universities with the marching band and dance team and cheer squad. And so, uh, yeah, so... It um, it was, you know, cool to realize like, oh, this is something that black and brown girls are excited about. They they want to do it. It wasn't like I was taking my boys for piano lessons for seven years and it was like pulling teeth. They just never wanted to go. I'm like, no, get your piano book. We're going. We're going. Get your piano book. No, we're not quitting <laughs> so, for like seven years. And, uh, um, you know, so it was like hard to get them to do it. Whereas for dance and hip hop dance for black and brown girls, I realized it was not a hard sell. It was like, Oh, they're already interested in this. They want to do it. They're excited about it. Um, and maybe the families like it too, because it's, you know, in ways hip hop, uh, some of the dance moves come from African dance. Okay. Right. So, uh, I realized that hip hop, you know, I mean, of course it comes out of the black experience in America, but it also helps to celebrate the diaspora. The, the, the tradition, the culture, the dance of the African diaspora, um, because some of the dance moves are African in nature. So, yeah, so I started to envision an Afrocentric dance studio. You know, I didn't know much about Afro-Cuban or Afro-Caribbean, 
but it, uh, but uh, yeah, so that's where the idea really started. Love it, love it. So the first question I, I was going to ask is, you know, there's there's a pretty pretty diverse population in the under the underserved communities. Like it's not all black and brown. So is it going to be open to everyone with like a focus on black and brown? So, um, right. And I realized I, there is one other nugget of that last story that I feel like helps to explain it. So I started to do research in the Boston area. I don't know if I told you this part before. Um, I drove all around Boston because I thought, okay, do we have, um, you know, dance studios. So I, I found 22 dance studios out in the suburbs, but of course it's out in the suburbs. So I'd walk in and it's like a hundred little white girls doing ballet or jazz or tap and, you know, moms and dads pay fine. It's a dance studio uh, in operation. Great. And, but then uh, I started to uh, explore in our black and brown neighborhoods here in Boston. Those are uh, Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, Hyde Park. And um, I, as you know, with any smartphone, you can just like, put in like dance studio and drive to the location. Yeah. And I found five or six that had shut down, went out of business. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, I, so I found two, but they were really small. It was not like uh, the robust, you know, Miss Diana with the dancing dolls with hundreds of girls being, you know, having this opportunity. So that it was at that point where I realized, oh, we have all these opportunities for boys, black and brown boys here in Boston, but not as many opportunities for girls. So that's, helped really push the idea forward. Um, and if, yes. So to answer your question, uh, no, of course we will accept anyone who walks in the door. So right. White, Asian, Spanish speaking, international, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, but just because I saw all these dance studios all around the Boston area, but you know, not seeing them in our communities of color here in Boston, I realized, uh, you know, and so part of it has to be like, let's get real. Like, I, you know, I, don't, I didn't, want, didn't want to do this to make money off of black moms yeah. or dads. I, I thought it has to be low cost, affordable, or even free. So then I started to think, is it a charity? Is it a nonprofit? Um, and so one thing that I think is really beautiful about the dream is that I realized I, I can't build these in like the downtown with skyscrapers and it needs to be in our black and brown neighborhoods so that yeah. it's convenient for the girls who live right there, right? Convenient for the moms and dads. Or whoever would bring the girl to her dance class, the, the aunt, the uncle, the grandmother, you know, has to be convenient for the families. Uh, really good question. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, no, it's definitely a great idea. And um, as you, if you remember from our last talk, like I'm a visionary. So like, as I'm listening to you talk, like you, you can probably, if that was a nonprofit, you can probably get grants to make that work and you can probably get donors. Like there's a school here in South Providence that my daughters went to called Community Prep. And when I tell you, it's like right smack in the hood. And it's it's a great school, but they have these wealthy, these wealthy people that sponsor each child. So like my daughter Olivia, she got, I think it was thirteen thousand five hundred a year from, from this family. And then we had to pay one twenty five a month. So that was you know to go to, to a private and uh, as far as like like the education, the education was insane, you know. So like it wasn't like some cookie cutter program. It was a great, great school, but it, it was funded just from these wealthy these wealthy people that just wanted to to help help the un- underprivileged youth. And so like 
I, I can see you putting together something something like that because I'm sure there's some well-off people that want to help. You know, like maybe they can you know spot sponsor a child for this after-school program. You know, so not to tell you what to do, but that's that's just how my mind works. Right. <laughs> yes, I'll share that. Uh, I still have an open mind about it. So I I envisioned it as a business, but yeah, I um the last chapter of the second book. I think it's the last chapter I, I share that, yeah, I, I have an open mind. It might end up being like a nonprofit that can accept grants. Perhaps that's the route we will go. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, because even, you know, I, like I don't understand why, why people get bent out of shape about nonprofit, like the people who run nonprofits that they make money to. But it's like, but you're okay with like the CEO of Marlboro who, who spends, who, you know, helps people basically – die and get cancer with his product but it's okay that he's a multimillionaire. but like the ceo of the make-a-wish foundation gets hated on when he's given thousands of kids you know their their final experiences you know b- b- before they pass like i don't understand why that's an issue <laughs> you know so it's like you can still take care of yourself and your family with this nonprofit because the mission the mission doesn't change any but you should should be compensated for your time Oh, that's a good point. Right. Uh, um, you're talking about the salary and uh, packages for, yeah. yes, the top level management. Right. Sure. I hear yeah. you. Yeah. So, yeah, like I know people people get, get hated on for that, but it's like, <laughs> it's like, don't you go to work to get paid? It's like, I'm going to work too. <laughs> The exact same thing. All right. So how soon do you think or just do you have a timetable for when the first one could be ready? Right. Okay. So uh, to answer that, I'll say that, um, you know, these business plans, this vision for the dance studio company, uh, again, 14 dance studios, 14 major American cities. uh, And I, I realized the dream is so beautiful. It's so awesome. I'm so excited about it. And it's kind of like that quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Yes. And uh, so it was, believe it or not, only a couple months ago, October of 2020, in which I, you know, I had like 85 pages written of the dance studio vision, the dance wear, the after school schedule, all the details of like how, how to run it all and the hiring of dance instructors, like the full business plan. And I didn't think it was going to be a book. It was only at that time, a couple months ago where I, I had like a, a vision and uh, an epiphany and had the courage to realize, Oh my God, I just have to put it out there. It's so beautiful that um, it's like an ask to the universe. And I realized I had to, yeah, turn it into a book. So it was only a couple months ago where I thought, Oh my gosh, I should just like publish this and, put it out as a book because I'm going to need some help and <laughs> team. Um, and I thought, how can I, how can I get started? I don't have any cash flow. I can't hire employees now. And I realized, oh, I could get some interns. So I have right now I have 10 college interns from seven different HBCUs. Nice. And, um, and so we are, you know, talking about early steps. Like how do I, get the first location, like maybe even in the summer, can I find business partners? Can I find a, a, a location for the first dance studio? You know, how do I just start making it happen? You know, even before having JLo give me $4 million. <laughs> that that would be amazing, huh? 
Oh God, no, but uh, I love I love the concept. Love the concept a lot. And so, will will you tie in say life lessons that may be lacking in those communities? You know, in saying that, like you know, there are a good a higher percentage of darker skinned people are growing up like with, without a father, you know, or a father in prison. Or you know, you know, parent, a mom who might be a workaholic, a workaholic, or you know, there's so so many different issues that that are plaguing the inner cities. So, like, will there be maybe a central theme behind the dance? Have you thought of anything like that? Yes, definitely. Um, right. So, many lessons that that could be shared. So, I, I'm imagining uh, motivational speakers, uh, guest speakers, workshops in which we can help to inspire and educate these young women um, on topics of financial literacy and, and life skills. Because I, I'll share that, you know, I acknowledge that at the heart of this mission, it's, it's not really about dance. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the basic level, like on a day-to-day basis, it's about listening to your dance instructor and paying attention, follow along, uh, be quiet, you know, support the girls on your team, you're getting exercise, you're making new friends. Uh, these are valuable life skills. You know, if you're on a dance team, you can't, you know, you shouldn't be talking when the dance instructor is talking. Um, and so, uh, you know, if she's the leader and we're learning this new dance, things like that, life skills. But uh, but then also it has to be about inspiring these young women to dream big and we want you to you know, do whatever you can do and be all you can be. So yes, can you like, you know, sit on boards of major corporations. Can you, uh, we want you to become doctors and lawyers and uh, we need you to please become senators and governors and we need you to dream big. So, yeah, so it's, it, yeah, I'm going to have to, you know, incorporate motivational speakers or workshops so that we keep um, sharing those very vital lessons that we all need. Good question. That's awesome. Yeah, like I do that with my fitness people. Like I tell people, They'll say, oh, you're a trainer, right? Like, I'm not a trainer. I said, I'm a personal development coach. I said, I just happen to use fitness as the vehicle. You know, so like with with you, you know, dance is going to be your vehicle. But I was just curious if there was a higher mission. So like when people come to me, I don't, you know, my sole goal isn't just help them lose weight or put on muscle. You know, so I got I go deep into all right. Where are you? Where where are you currently? Where do you want to get? Because in order to get there, you have to become someone different. You know, like it's just how it. Because right now you're you're lazy. You're an excuse maker. You don't prioritize yourself. And I go right down the list. Like if you stay as that person, you're never gonna get here. So now you have to become more confident. You got to have better self esteem. You got to be disciplined. You got to be regimented. You know, like, and, and you have to, you have to do all these steps if you want to get here. So, like, I envision something like that happening with with these young girls. Ah, oh, yes, exactly, definitely. So now, so now the, to finish the thought, sorry, I had, my throat was getting dry. So, I coached basketball in uh, the city up in Providence, and it was it was quite it was quite the experience. I, I have to say, because I told him, like, I grew up from a very strong, structured, well-structured household. You know, it's like we weren't rich by any means, but we weren't poor either, you know? So it's like we we were raised well. And my my parents just hammered values into us that are still here today. <laughs> you know, just there's, I can still hear, hear, hear my dad's voice ringing in my head when I have doubts about something. 
you know, God rest his soul. But when I was coaching these girls, there's just, just a lot, just so much to unpack. Like you can tell what's going on in their household or what's lacking in their household. You know, so same thing. So as we were myself and uh, my assistant coach, as we were coaching these girls, we were constantly giving life lessons and, you know, same thing about respect, you know, don't talk when I'm talking, you know, you know, sit up, sit up tall, you know, and when you talk, speak with, with authority, like, like be assertive, you know, teaching them how to be confident, you know, the difference between confidence and cockiness and just the work ethic. It's like, you know, it's, it's okay if we lose, but we play to win. You know, it's like, it's like, I don't, I don't like when you tell kids that winning doesn't matter because in life it matters. It matters a lot. So like, if you apply for a job, don't you want, want the job? Yeah. That's called winning. You have to beat out the other applicants. That's right. You have to get in front of that interviewer and wow them. So like we're raising these kids to really to just be average, you know? So like we, we instilled it into these, the, to these girls that average isn't the goal. It's like greatness is the goal. Then if you land on excellent, that's still good. Excellent. Yes, I love it. I agree. Wonderful. Yes. All right. So you just launched the second book in March, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how'd that go so far? Oh, wonderful. I, 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 I can share something that I don't think I told you before um, and uh, about the book launch because I realized – um, so I don't know if you've spent much time on the new app. It's a club and it also with the word house. <laughs> no, cause I'm on team Android. So they don't have that for us yet. <laughs> so, uh, so I'll share that it's, you know, these public rooms, public conversations, like uh, a conversation is going on and it's sort of like if you walked into the room, you're just in the audience and you, you can't speak. Um, you can only speak if you're like on stage as a moderator or a panelist. And um, so, so I thought it was a good platform because these rooms fill up quickly and suddenly you could have like a hundred people listening to you. And I thought, Oh, perfect for a book launch. And uh, so back in January, I I started networking and reaching out to uh, like um, amazing women of color and some men, uh, black men that were kicking butt on the new app and, and, and doing well on Instagram, like bloggers and influencers. And, you know, I was looking for people that are really active on social media that could, you know, would be willing to like, listen to my story, hear the vision, and then maybe stand next to me on stage yes. on the new app. You see, cause, cause I thought, you know, going public with this, I mean, here I am as a white man entering this space, you know, I'm talking about hip hop. I'm talking about what's best for black and Brown girls, you know, as a white man. So I thought, you know, before I just go out there, I thought I need, you know, how can I make new friends and develop some credibility in the black community? And so that was important for me. So I had for each of the three nights, I had like nine or 10 amazing black women standing next to me that, you know, were there to say, I support Adam. This is a great vision. Um, I know it might sound crazy, but it's, be- it's beautiful. I, we like it. We're here to support Adam. So, so that was really cool. Um, to um and and you can see some of those women are on my Instagram. We've done Instagram lives together, and you know that was really important. I thought I need people of color standing next to me that you know can validate and say, okay, uh, this is this is really cool. His heart's in the right place. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's just so sad that that we have to take that step. It's like, why can't it just be embraced that this man wants to help these young girls? You know what I mean? It's like we, we, we have we attach race and gender to everything because I hear it when I say I do w- women's empowerment groups. 
and they're like, well, why do you do women's empowerment groups? You know, you're a man. That doesn't that doesn't mean I can't empower women. It's like if you're looking for empowerment and I can give it, who cares what my gender is? Uh. <laughs> you know, so same same thing. Like if you if your passion is to help these young girls of color, then you you follow that passion. Like it shouldn't matter. Oh, why is a white man gonna gonna do this? And, you know, what I mean, like isn't that what we want? Like, don't we want inclusion? <laughs> it's like we want inclusion, but yet subliminally we still preach separation. And that's why I wanted to ask you about critical race theory. Because I feel that's what that's doing, you know. Like it's not it's not teaching integration; it's teaching separation because everything is being segmented by race. Like, isn't that what what we were fighting against all of this time? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Okay. Uh, well, I will share first of all that I think regarding like my book and the book launch and the mission, I feel like. You know, I'm trying often to think of it from like a, a CEO perspective because I'm trying to launch this. I mean, this is not going to be some small business. I'm talking about I'm serious about I'm building 14 dance studios, 14 major American cities. You know, I, I sort of, you know, I envision it like the McDonald's of, mm. of you know, like uh, up and down the East Coast. Uh, the, the 14 cities are listed in the book. So I've got a grand vision coming for book number three about how I'm going to really do it all. And, um, uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I felt like, and you would understand that sort of corporate angle, like, you know, instead of me just going out there and then, you know, uh, there are of course people out there that judge right away and, and don't have the best of intentions and they don't give you the benefit of the doubt. And yes. so there are, you know, there's so many people with negative thinking, closed minded thinking. Uh, uh, and, and I thought, you know, instead of incurring, negative energy right away. I thought, okay, I, this is something I have to do. That's right. I need, of course, from a corporate perspective, almost, I, it's smarter for me from a, this endeavor, this business endeavor, or if it's a nonprofit endeavor, whatever it is, it, this mission, I, I thought, yes, I need, you know, people of color standing next to me. They can vouch for me. And so, you know, your point on, oh, isn't that sad that we still need that? I mean, I, I, I guess that, uh, I'll say that, you know, I think people and their minds and, and, and where we are in sort of uh, our human evolution, our brains and connected to society, I feel like not everyone is there yet. Yeah. Um, you know, so I just, I'm just being honest about the fact that it's like, rather than um, have me incur any sort of negative energy, I thought, you know, how can I keep this all positive Um a hundred percent positive, like a win, win, win for, you know, everyone involved. And so, mm. um, right. But, uh, and, and finally I'll say that the context is important too. Like we can't, you know, I, I say at the beginning of the book, by the way, that I don't want anyone, Oh, judging me and saying, Oh, Adam's trying to take advantage of the situation after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Yeah. And, you know, so I say this at the very beginning of the book that, um, I, I, I started writing these ideas in 2015, you know, five years before George Floyd, five years before Breonna Taylor. Um, I started writing these ideas after Ferguson, Missouri, uh, Mike Brown, fatally yeah. shot killed. And, you know, I was upset about police brutality and police aggression, but, um, and racism, but yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So like an example of why I asked that, is here down in South Kingstown, 
there's like this big push about you know, pu pushing in you know the, the critical race ideology into schools. And so in one of the of the schools down there, that's one of the classes read a book and the cover of the book, I don't remember the name of it, but the cover of the book shows a police car with a young a young black kid with his hands in the air. And then it go it just goes through talking about police brutality. But but, but now we're talking to kids. You know what I mean? It's like we're talking to kids. Now, for me, I'm a very rational, rational thinker. You know, so I know it doesn't happen like that all the time. I mean, I'm 46 years old. I've gotten pulled over my share of time. I've gotten pulled over intoxicated twice. And one of the cops followed me home. You know, with, with, with the other one, I was so close to home. He, he just let, let me go. I got pulled over three months ago, uh, maybe six months ago, because I forgot, you know, the DMV gave us gave us an extension on our registrations because the DMV was all closed because of the pandemic. And I just forgot about it. So the cop pulls me over. I had an unregistered vehicle. He, he could have impounded the vehicle and inconvenienced me. He didn't. He's like, just get that done, done ASAP. So like, like I personally have never had an issue with it. But I just feel like when there is an issue, it's bombarded all over the media and all over social media that we think it happens more often than it actually does. And then the cops are being unfairly targeted. So I, I just think it's dangerous pointing, putting that image into these young kids' heads. Then heaven forbid they do get pulled over. They react irrationally and then issues happen. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think you make a valid point. If we, um, the, the media sensationalizes uh, images. And so if we um, keep seeing those kinds of negative images, like um, a, a bad situation with a cop pulling over a young black man, let's say, and, and how it goes down, um, yeah. Um, but, uh, well, I feel like the problem of racism in America is, is just so big and so great that we we're we're probably, you know, good hearted people and good minded people that have the best of intentions. I think we're, we're, you know, going at it from many different angles. Like how do we eradicate racism? How do we remove racism from the system and the structural, you know, throughout America? Um, yeah. and so I, I, I can understand, uh, why individuals are wanting to, uh, you know, make this an issue because we still have a problem and, and, and black and brown men and women are still getting shot and killed in the streets of America. So it is still happening. And it, you know, it seems that, you know, I understand, you know, I will say that unfortunately it, it paints police with a broad brush that all police are bad or yes. all police are racist. And that's. That is unfortunate because I know some police officers in my town and these are normal moms and dads that are normal, good people. And they, I don't believe them to be racist. And I, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, it is happening. You're right. Cause it is a broad brush and the media likes the sensational images. Um, but I, I just feel like we're in process. We're just sort of in this like weird mixture at this time of sort of modern American history. And perhaps in 200 years, we will have moved beyond and we're, we're going to have only robots pulling people over. So then the <laughs> robot, <laughs> I, I'm hopeful that we'll get there, but man, there's a lot of dynamic changes going on right now. Good question. Thank you. 
Yeah, like because I had said before, you know, there are still people alive that that were here during segregation. You know, and, and it's like so say 30 years from now, most likely they they will all have passed on. So I was like, you know, now is the perfect time to educate our younger people on just, okay, it's not to say ignore that that stuff happened. I'm not saying that. Like, it should definitely be taught. But just the ideologies with the critical race theory, it's almost like you're vilifying whites. And I don't think that's right. You're vilifying whites and you're vilifying police officers. You know, and that and that's just not not right. And what some of the school, what some of the school departments, like my old high school, I'm actually speaking at at their um at their school the school committee meeting against it, is like they're talking about hiring certain practices and X amount of people. And I was like, that's exactly what we don't want. I'm <laughs> like, we're going backwards. You know, it's like like if you want equality, it's got to be across the board. It's like we can't have selective equality. It's like you can't. All right, well, so for this group, you guys have to jump through more more hoops, and you guys will get an easier pick because you're underserved. They're like, but but that's not equality. That that's just taking the balance and just flipping it. <laughs> you know, it's like you you want to hire the best person, whoever's the most qualified, and whites outnumber blacks four to one. You know what I mean? So like things can't be 50-50. You know, there's 160 million whites, there's 40 million blacks. Like things can't be 50-50. It's like I don't understand why why that's not easily understood. You know, what are your thoughts? So I mean it sounds like you're also against affirmative action. Am I misunderstanding? I am. I, am. I believe that the that the best person qualified should should, should get the job. Are people gonna have prejudices? Yes, they are. But that, but that happens. That happens everywhere. Like I'm sure when you start expanding your team, you know, like you you have visions of what you might want if if you have a front desk person, right? you know, you, like you're gonna have a vision of what you want that person to, to somewhat look like and what skills you want them to have. Like that's normal. That's not racist. That's normal. <laughs> you know, like if I'm casting a movie and I want a heavy set Asian to play X role, like that's the role you want them to play. <laughs> you know, so. I don't know. That's just that's just my opinion on it. But as I said, my parents always taught us that, you know, everyone will always see the color of your skin, but it's up to me to help them see past it. And then one of my business coaches, this what this wasn't about race, but she she just always says, be so good that they can't ignore you. You I know? know, so 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 like that's just my mentality. Like in every job that I've said, I don't want to say I've gotten every single one, but most jobs, and I've worked usually in predominant white areas. I've ascended the ladder in every single every single one of them, you know. So like, I'm just of a different mindset because I don't go into it defeating myself. I go into it with like, you guys are playing second place, mm. and I just think if we shift that mentality from always being on the defensive to like, dude, step into your power and go rock that interview, you know. What I mean, then I think. We'll, we'll we'll start to naturally see see a shift instead of trying to put in these ideologies and these laws to to force it to happen. Like just let blacks know. Listen, you can do whatever you want to do. Said so you got a good brain. I said let's just put some action behind that brain and let's get you where you need to be. I think that's more powerful than any legislation. Wow, I you know it's interesting. I I appreciate you being so honest with your thoughts and opinions because you see I'm still new to this journey about appearing on podcasts and I haven't really, you know, I haven't gone political yet. I haven't really 
had, I've only been talking about the mission in the books. And so, you know, I mean, I, uh, so I, I, um, anyways, I feel like I don't want to get off topic though. I don't want to, maybe I'll let you bring us back. Well, what, what I just said, where it's relevant is from what I asked you earlier. Like if, if, if there's going to be some bigger, bigger lessons through your dance. Mm. So like that's that's how I was tying the two in. Because I think what you're planning is way more important than critical race theory in schools. It's like getting this group of underserved young girls and teaching them respect, teaching them confidence, you know, teaching, you know, improving their work ethic and teaching them how to work as a team. You, you know what I mean? I think those values is what's needed. Critical race theory is not. <laughs> you know, like I said, especially if we want equality, we have to stop separating everyone. Right. So, I mean, I feel like I, I appreciate you going here because I, you know, I'm envisioning myself like, being on radio programs like uh, the Breakfast Club, uh, and so, or I, I want to be, if you know, and so I, I, I am planning a big book tour for this summer. I'm trying to think how can I do an East Coast, you know, up and down. Can I, you know, swing through Atlanta and Charlotte, and um, so I'm trying to do, uh, especially in the South too, of course, because you know, with larger Black audiences, and you know, thinking about who will support me on the mission. And trying to get on radio show programs. So, of course, I'm going to encounter questions like this, you know. So, I guess, you know, and I have to, you know, I'm wondering if, should I just stick to the book and the mission? Or, you know, should I talk about these things? Because I I feel like at this time, I feel like I don't agree with you. I feel like things are not equal and not fair for black people. And I feel like uh, uh, affirmative action is helpful. And that we do need to think about how can we get like more black and brown teachers into the schools. Uh, you know, for example, at my high school where I teach, we don't have any, we just hired uh, like an assistant director of diversity, inclusion, equity, you know, the, the, that it's a classic role in many school districts. And I mean, I think it's a step in the right direction, but anyway, so fine. Uh, you know, I, I'm just going to, I guess I'll just leave it there, but I appreciate your honesty. No, no problem. See, and, and again, with programs like yours as well, because like one way to improve getting more teachers or getting young kids as, you know, uh, educators, as engineers, as what, you know, whatever the industry is, you know, CEOs and managers is to decrease the dropout rate in those communities. You know, because like I'm working on a program here for the downtown schools because like the the, the state actually took over the Providence school system, you know, because it was just so poorly run. And I just think, you know, if we can get these kids to graduate, keep them off of the streets, mm-hmm. and then we'll have a much better chance of seeing that that level of diversity. But like I said, but it takes programs like like yours, you know, like the other stuff. I mean, I'm not saying it's not helpful, but it's still it doesn't it doesn't help you achieve what you want to achieve, achieve because it's still based on the color of your skin. You know, so to have equality, it, ha- it truly has to be across the board, mm. you know. Um, and perhaps we'll get there someday. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely will. But ju- but just, you know, things like I said, I just feel like things like critical race theory is a step backwards. You know, that's my thing, because like now we're going to start indoctrinating the kids at a young age that there's clear differences between the races. Mm. You know, so right. I don't know. 
<laughs> and 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 like I said, it's good too that that you don't disagree. I, I mean, that you don't agree because we don't have to agree on everything. Like that's the beauty of having conversations. You know, it's like I can take your your perspective and I see where you're coming from. You know, I think you see you know where I'm coming from, and then somewhere in there we can find common ground. Because like starting on June seventh, I'm actually gonna shift my Sunday show to Mondays. And it's going to be a debate panel every single Monday. And right now, I filled up all of June and half of July already. <laughs> so, and I just I just placed an ad on backstage just two days ago, and I've already found that five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five. I've already found thirty guests. So five five panelists plus myself each show. You know, so yeah. uh, if you want in on that, I'll send you the uh, link for it. Okay. But. But we're going to have talks just like this because, you know, sometimes things can get fiery and people are yelling at each other and all that. And so, like, I put in my ad, if you're easily triggered, this is not for you. Like, if you can't handle if you can't handle being disagreed with, this is not for you. Because the the part the point of a debate show is to show different points of view, you know. So so at the end of it, it's not like, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, chances are we're still going to disagree by the end of the show, but at least we can appreciate where everyone else is coming from, provided they can articulate it, you know, in a good manner. Yes. Uh, so I, I, if I could, um, I want to mention my books and where people can oh, yeah. buy and do, okay, great. Do you, uh, and then can you check your Instagram quick? Essentially a little Instagram DM or Facebook messenger. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you are, I forgot, I didn't mention the book at the beginning, the title, uh, 50 Days to a Better Investment, is the second book. That's about the dance studio vision. 50 Days to a Better Life is my first book on overcoming alcoholism, uh, anxiety and depression, changing your life. Yes, uh, these books are available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or you can uh, go through my website, ChakaNetwork.com. Um, uh, yeah, thanks so much. Again, the first book, Overcoming Alcoholism, 50 Days to a Better Life. And the second book on the Dance Studio Vision, 50 Days to a Better Investment. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Love it. Love it. Thank you very much for being here. I know you got to run, so you can go ahead and head out. And um, and again, if, if you want in on one of those debate panels, let me know, because it's a different link for that one. And uh, if you want yeah. in, I'll, I'll send it yeah. to you. Okay. Yeah. And so I know toward, towards the end, you know, it's like we shifted gears, but but we didn't really. Because what you're proposing addresses what we discussed, you yeah. know what I mean. So just maybe from a different angle, but it's you know it it's all it all ties in together. So awesome. good 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 luck in that endeavor, and I have no no doubt that you'll get your 14 cities. And um, if if you need need a hype man on one of your tours, let let me know. Maybe I'll join you and uh, you know give you give you some some support because I love the mission. Absolutely do. Excellent. Wow. Thank you so much, Robert. Awesome. All right. All right, sir. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. All right. All right. So this finishes up episode number 77. It was Adam, who's got, got his mission to open up 14 dance studios in 14 major cities around America to help underserved youth, primarily in the black and brown community, but it's open to anyone in that area. And I think it's amazing because these young kids need to know that they have that, that they have choices. They need to know that they can become who they want to become. They have to know that, yeah, there may be obstacles, but you're strong enough to get past those obstacles. And that's a great mission. And I have no doubt that he's going to, he's going to accomplish that with his, with his dance studios and just his passion for it. All right. So that's all I got for you again, Chaka network.com. If you want to check out his book, 
or just follow up on his work. And that's it for me. I am signing off. I'll be back in an hour with Denise, Denise, I believe her name is. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping others break through the barriers that are holding them back. To book Robert B. Foster to speak or to reach out, go to robertbfoster.com slash speaks on Instagram at Robert underscore B underscore Foster on Twitter at RBF underscore fitness and on Facebook at Robert B. Foster. Till next time, shut up and grind.